Here's the million dollar question. How do men like us reach our full potential and grow into the men we dream of being while taking care of our responsibilities, working, being good husbands, fathers, and still take care of ourselves? That's the question. This podcast will help you with those answers. My name is Brent and welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast. Welcome to the Fallible Man Podcast, your home for all things man, husband, and father. My name is Brent and today my special guest is Tim Mousseau, who is an HR consultant, speaker, and a leader in changing the conversation about sexual harassment. Tim, welcome to the show. Brent, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here and excited to be on with you. Well, let's see if we can go technical difficulties aside and uh, get into this. We had some little technical difficulties started getting guys going, and I am tongue-tied tonight. Wow. I'm not doing, I'm not starting this. I apologize, brother. So Tim, I am not a, a great podcast host because I don't really introduce my guests because I get to do this incredible thing of researching you and finding out who yeah. you are before the show. Not everybody knows how a podcast works, but we touch base and I do some research and I get to look up biographies on you and stuff like that and find out all this information. But I found that sharing all the accolade stuff, all the resume stuff doesn't actually tell my listeners yeah. who I'm talking to. It's just not an accurate description. So Tim, tell me who Tim Musso is. So if I can switch that how many times tonight? Yeah, no, you got it right so far. So it's two for two at this point. Yeah, so I know, as you mentioned a little, I work in fields of HR and I'm a speaker. I've been doing that for around eight years full time now. My main topics focus on sexual harassment and violence prevention and then just how to build safe cultures and create environments people want to be a part of. I really got my start in that space and in the industry and talking really openly about my own experiences as a survivor of sexual assault. And so that's something that I began talking about and discussing really early on in my career. And since then, have done a lot of work, starting with colleges, and that was really my starting point. Since then, I've done work with a variety of companies, military installations, law enforcement professionals, businesses, really all across the world, actually, as well on that. And I like to do research as well. So a lot of times when I get to work with populations, I kind of have opportunity and access to sometimes do surveys, assessments, tools, pieces like that to try and understand and figure out where people are and where they're coming from. And a lot of my work centers on masculinity and ideas around it, just coming from my perspective as a man, what it was like to be a male survivor, sometimes the things that I heard growing up around the topic, things that I never heard around sexual violence that I wish I had. And I had gone through all these trainings in college and there's all this information I felt was lacking. And so I try and always bring that perspective to the table whenever I speak. Tim, I, I got to ask the deep question of the night, okay? Prepare yeah. yourself. What is your favorite ice cream? I would say pistachio. Like a real, it has to be a good pistachio. Like I feel like a lot of them are too fake or just kind of not the right flavor, but I think a really good pistachio is probably the way to go. All right. Fair enough. I, I, I ask all my guests because I just think ice cream is universal. It's yeah. something we can all rally behind. Even lactose intolerant people have options these days, which is awesome. Yeah. But I don't yeah. know. That, I think I've had maybe one person say pistachio. It's amazing okay. with all the flavors out there, how people differ and what they prefer. And yeah. I've heard some inter really interesting ones. I, I got to admit, I've never done pistachio. Okay. Not a huge fan of the flavor, but yeah. mainly I'm just a chicken. When I get ice cream, is I, I want what I know I love versus, right? Yeah, no, I get it. I would. I, I was going to say the other answer would probably be strawberry. Like that's probably the easier go-to because I feel like it's <laughs> hard to mess up. So... Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Yeah. So I normally spend the first half of the show kind of lobbying some softball answers and getting to know my guests. But Tim, I got to be honest, doing research for the show, I have so many questions I want to ask you because I don't yeah. feel like I've really ever had the conversation, the chance to have this conversation with anybody, especially who's somebody who's deeply in the field. Bear with me because I'm going to pick your brain tonight, man. I'm Let's go for it. I'm looking forward to this. So I was putting together my list of questions for the show and things I want to talk to you about. And there are just pieces everywhere in your biography that stick out to me that I want to dig into. So guys, if you're listening, I'm going to do my best to keep this in, in a fluid motion, but we might be a little bit all over the place tonight because Tim just has so much he can share with us. So one of the things that you say you're always ready to answer is a question about modern masculinity and where that started. But I think to give that fair play, we need to get to what in your viewpoint is the idea of traditional masculinity? Yeah. So I think whenever you look at it, for me, traditional masculinity is a lot of concepts that we really just embraced until roughly the 1970s. And so up until a certain point, we just weren't necessarily having conversations around masculinity, what it meant. That's not to say people weren't writing about it, exploring it, that philosophers way back in the day weren't talking about it. Right. It's just more so that we weren't researching it, especially from a like sociological perspective. And to a large point, we were just, hey, this is what it means to be masculine. And we would go with the de facto answers that were coming out of the culture at the time. And we'd say, okay, we look at the culture. We assume that this is how most people feel about it. We're going to say, this is what we're, people, how people should dress, how they behave, the values they hold, all that kind of stuff. And I think as time has gone on, we've started to realize a little bit more that for me, when I think about modern masculinity, it's being willing to critique or investigate some of those values. Where do they come from? Where do they stem from? And how do they serve us? So for example, a, a traditional value I oftentimes talk about, because I think it's an easy one, is ideas of stoicism. I don't think there's anything wrong with stoicism, right? I've, it's, it's a great field. I know a lot of people who love it. I have books on it myself. But I think that for a large part of masculinity, it was just, if you're a man, you're stoic. You keep your emotions inside. You're, you don't show them. You kind of hold them in. And for so long, that was just accepted. And that's what we were taught. That's what we were taught. That's what we were taught. And there was sometimes pushback of, if you show your emotions, you're not masculine. And there was no grounding in it. There was no research around it. There was no idea about why we believe that. There was no kind of conception of, hey, men do experience emotions as much as any other gender. And so it became this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy of we're told time and time again, men are stoic. And then you grow up in a system telling you, you got to be stoic. And so your entire life, you feel like, got to be stoic. And so then you just accept it and go with it, even though it doesn't necessarily, it may not work for you. It may not be who you want to be. It may not necessarily fit with the way you view the world, the way you experience it, the way you view and process your own emotions. And so I think a lot of times when I look at traditional masculinity, it's some of those concepts that we were taught from historically, this is how men behave, even though we never had a founding or a reason for why we were taught them besides the fact that's how men had behaved to that point. Uh so it's, it's the John Wayne image, right? Yeah. And I think, and even that's interesting because I think that's very also American version of masculinity. I think you look at other cultures and that's not the case. So you look at a lot of Asian cultures and places where there's a very collectivistic community where many of the ideas aren't as individualism. So it's in those cultures, not to say that in America, it's not that you're a breadwinner provider, but I think for us, we were taught that rugged individual, go out, do what you want, achieve, you know, aim for your goals, be the best at what you do, all that kind of stuff. Don't let anything stand in your way. Don't let anything stop you. Don't complain, just work. 
And that is a through line for many masculine cultures. But again, you start to look in places in Asia where there's a very collectivistic culture and it's like, your main goal is to provide for the family in very unique ways. And like, I remember one of my first times I was in Thailand doing a training out there with a client and just talking with them about when they got married, the first conversation, one of my the customers I was working with, they told me is one of their first conversations him and his wife had is whose house are the parents moving into, which in which set of parents, basically, because in their culture, it's, hey, if you have this family, you take care of them. And I think that's happens here in the United States, but it's a little at odds of literally they get married and the conversation is, okay, which of our parents need us to care for them? And they're going to move in with us. And that's just a little bit of a different way of looking at the world and what it means to be masculine. I, I love the store Sportsman's Warehouse. Hey, I, I'm yep. a gun guy. So I like firearms. I like fishing. I don't like fishing. I like taking my daughter fishing. Okay. I hate fishing. She loves it. So I like taking my daughter fishing, but one of my favorite things in those stores was they always like almost everyone I've ever been in have this giant pitch like leather matted framed picture of john wayne right there at the opening door and i grew up watching john wayne movies with my dad and clint eastwood lee marvin i actually was a traditional wyoming cowboy i went to high school okay. in wyoming i worked on a ranch i pushed cattle on horseback and i definitely identified with that quote-unquote culture early on but yeah we have these right this traditional value of masculinity that has been accepted for so long and then you talk about modern masculinity right? There's a shift yeah. in the cultural difference. So what? let's get into what is modern masculinity in these days. I think for me, it's it really comes down to what is, are we willing to be flexible? And can we look past some of the rigidity of what we were taught? So for me, whenever I look at some of the, what I would define as traditional masculinity, I think there's this loss of, there is a sense of rigidity and there's loss of this acceptance. And I would say even my perspective on modern masculinity is idealized. It's not always true. It doesn't always happen. It's not occurring everywhere. It's just that I think we're seeing a bigger kind of acceptance of, hey, just because I don't fit into this mold, that's okay. Because I know listening to you tell your story of your upbringing, growing up in Wyoming and on the ranches and things like that and growing up idolizing John Wayne, my perspective for me is great, fantastic. As long as you're not harming yourself or others, who cares? Great. That's your version of masculinity. That's amazing. I think for me, the modern aspect is, are we willing to have that embrace of someone else's masculine ideals? Because I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Air Force. He joined when he was 18. And part of the reason he joined is to help provide for his family because my grandfather passed away when my dad was in his early teens. And so my dad was doing that as, I can't go to college. I need to help provide. I w He was working from a very early age. And so I grew up in this military environment where we were taught things like, hey, the embrace of authority. If someone has a job that's higher than you or a title, you respect them. I was taught all these things around what that meant and all these values of hard work and all these pieces, that kind of stuff. And it's not that I rejected all of those pieces. I, I very much love and idealize my dad for what he taught me about work and being a contributing, just a person who cared about my community and what that meant and how it meant to give back with the job that I was doing. I just know for me, I was much more artistic. And I embraced that artistic side and I fell in love with it and with reading and was always a quote unquote sensitive kid. And I'm very fortunate that my dad, that was never a problem. And in our family, that was okay. And that was like, hey, yeah, that's who you are. That's who you are. And so for me, when I look at that modern piece, sorry, um, it's just basically, are we willing to be flexible? And are we willing to look at someone else's masculine values and say, hey, maybe that's not for me. Maybe that's not how I define masculinity 
but that's the culture they were raised in. That's the things they believe. Those are the beliefs they have. And like I said, the other piece for me, the qualifying factors is as long as they're not harming themselves or others, then there should be that acceptance of those values. Okay. I, so I'm not actually a Wyoming kid. I'm a preacher's kid. Okay. We, we moved, uh, my dad was a domestic missionary. So we moved second only to my military friends, military brats who moved every two or three years. We yeah. moved on average every two or three years. So I've okay. lived all over the country. That's just where I happened to go to high school and get my first oh, job. Okay. My, my father was very embracing of letting me be whoever I was going to be. Sometimes too much to his pain point, I'm sure, because I, I was not always the best kid, I'm sure. But yeah. it's just, it was a dynamic portion growing up for me because that high school age group is a very formative time. You form a lot of your identity there. So I'm just, can, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, how old are you? 31. 31. Okay. I'm always, I find generational differences very interesting. I find them very fascinating, yeah. actually. Uh, it was something before everybody was talking about millennials or Gen X or right. All the different, whatever labels we want to throw on it. I was actually, like I said, growing up with my dad being a minister, we were reading books even on, cause I used to be a youth minister on generational gaps inside churches. Yeah. Because that's something that a lot of the churches have had to face is this big shift between the generations. And there's a big, very big difference in the way they enjoy church and the way they feel like they're a part of the church. So that's something that's always fascinated me. Is so when I talk to people, okay, we're slightly different. You're 10 years younger than me. So I'm just, it yeah. always is interesting to me how it shapes the way you look at the world. You hear different languages with different generations. I'm right at the end of Gen X, depending on whose definition of generational gaps you. I read somebody say the other day that 40 year olds were millennials. Like, no. Yeah, right. It's, it's always changing. I, I remember when we started using the term millennial and I was much older than that at that point. So yeah, it's, it always, because people have such different views depending on their generation sometimes. So it's always cool to see where someone's coming from. You've spent a lot of time researching masculinity, right? And you've clearly yeah. outlined the way you see traditional masculinity and modern masculinity. Do you think there's an authentic masculinity somewhere in between? I think there. I don't know if there always is yet. I think we're finding potential places where there will be. I think that, and I know I've mentioned a few times, the model I always try and really work with people on is that idea of healthy versus harmful. Right. Um, I hate the term toxic masculinity. I, I don't like it. I think it's misused. I think that it's really just a catch all for people who want to talk about it in whatever sense. I just, I hate that. And that's why I went to the healthy versus harmful piece of there you go. I think that for me, it's, it's, we have to look at values that we hold in regards to how are they hurting us or helping us and how are they hurting others or helping others? Mm -hmm. And I think right now, a lot of the growing pain is that we're finding a lot of this struggle between, I think we're trying to merge all these generational beliefs. I think we're trying to merge all these kind of views of, um, what does this mean to me? I think the thing that I always appreciate about masculinity is whenever I have conversations, right? So whenever I work with college age clients, high schoolers, corporate professionals, professional athletes, soldiers in the military. If I talk on a one-on-one -on -one basis with any man, I feel like there's all these very beautiful stories about masculinity and the lessons they learned, the things their fathers taught them or their coaches or uncles or family members or mothers even, or anyone in their life really what taught them about being a man. And I think the thing we have to sometimes separate is that individual piece and start to look at the collective piece. For example, that's why I talk about stoicism a lot. Um, 
on an individual level, there's nothing wrong with stoicism. I think it's that if you teach people time and time again, you have to repress your emotions, you can't talk about them, you can't seek out help, we start to see some scary after effects of that. For example, when we usually study populations, we find that men are loneliest across every age range, right? So when we're comparing along gender and things like that, we find that men are feeling the loneliest, especially as we start to look at older populations of men. They're oftentimes in the highest level of experiencing some degree of loneliness and disconnect from their community. After effects of that sometimes are we th see things like substance abuse or, you know, alcoholism. So then you look at all the correlations of, hey, if, if you've been taught your entire life, you have to repress your emotions and you can't seek out help. And the result is you don't feel like you can turn to people and talk to people. And then that turns into drinking potentially as a way of coping. What are all the things that come with that? Because sure, you could say well, you're ruining your body, you're hurting yourself depending on how much you drink. But it's what about things like anger that might come up when you're drinking or drunk driving or all those other pieces. And so for me, I think we're trying. And I think that's why there's such a struggle in society nowadays to talk about masculinity sometimes. Because I think some people are, hey, you're trying to strip all these things that I inherited, that I love, that I learned in a very personal, meaningful way. And other people are saying, you got to get rid of this. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, it's causing harm. And I'm like, yeah, but let's tweak those values to look at it in a positive sense. Let's try and figure out a way to say this, va the value is not bad. The expression of the value is bad. Or like I said, the rigidity acceptance of the value is bad. So let's try and become more flexible with that. But we have to have an openness to have that conversation. We have to have a willingness to listen and to hear people. Because if you go to anyone and tell them your values are wrong, um, they're going to be upset. And especially if they're not intending to hurt someone, if they're not trying to hurt someone with the things they believe, you're just going to piss them off and you're going to alienate them. And I think that's why sometimes people get so upset. So I know that's a long-winded way of saying, I think that we, I think there is a middle place. I think there is something that will come. I think we're just struggling. And I think we have a lot of clashes right now. And I think a lot of people are talking as opposed to listening or actually trying to hear things. And because of that, they're missing out on the conversation at hand, right? Mm -hmm. No, actually, I, I love having this conversation with my guests because collectively, one of the great, great things I get to do as a podcast host is I get to talk to a wide array of very interesting people and most of which have formulated opinions. That's why they're doing podcasts and stuff like that. And they're sure. speaking to one specialty or another. And so for me, it's incredible because I get to be in the middle of all these conversations where I'm getting to look at other people's viewpoints and hear what they have to say. And I've always tried to be open about things. I, I always try to listen. That is one of the values my parents taught me was to listen to other people and, and weigh what they have to say. So it's always very cool to me to have this conversation because you get to take in all these pieces of information. I, I think as a society, we tend to do this pendulum thing. We never seem to find this middle. We just, we sway one way and, and then we sway the other way. And there's a brief touch where things level out and then it goes the other direction. And it's amazing to me how we just can't find that center ground a lot of time. Yeah. You're saying that just haven't found that middle ground yet. And there's, yeah, a lot of conversation, but it's more of, there's a lot of people talking and a lot less people listening yeah. to things like you're saying. So as we're having this conversation, right, as we're looking at what is masculinity? Because I've had that conversation several times. We can say, oh, it's a flood of chemicals in the body. If we want to look at it at a biological level, it's we can all say it's that. But I think you can be born male, but it doesn't necessarily mean you grow into a man. I think growing into a man or a masculine individual, that's learned traits. That's something you 
nurture, that's something you develop, good and bad. So it's always interesting to see, it's like, where does that land? Is it, is it over here, is it over there? And people just don't wanna have that conversation. I think we've lost the art of conversation in modern society to a great tragic where everybody's talking, but nobody actually wants to have a conversation. It's just, it's mind numbing sometimes because I think there is an authentic masculinity, but it, but it, I think it lands somewhere because I'm not a highly educated man, but my education as far as stoicism, I understand a lot of the base concepts of stoicism. I embrace a lot of the concepts of stoicism, but I never saw in there where it said, don't deal with and process your emotion. To me, I always understood it as don't let your emotion control you. And I, and I think a lot of people, I've seen a huge in the last couple of years movement towards stoicism. You see it on podcasts and YouTube and everywhere else, people stoic. And here we go, yeah, swing right. that pendulum way out there again, right? And yeah. I think from my limited understanding, it, it, it's not about not dealing with it. It's about not letting it control you. And I think people make that mistake. They go, oh, we can't experience emotion. Men don't. Men, men just bury it. We don't experience. Absolutely. And anything you don't process, anything you don't come to a, I want to say the word understanding. You have to come to the understanding of why you feel this, what's causing it, and what is the right way to handle it. You have to come to a level playing field with it, and and then you can go, oh, okay, now I get it, and I'm not going to let it have me tear my co-workers head off. So it's a much needed conversation. We're trying to have that conversation here, but we're going to jump even deeper because I, I promise this actually goes in a somewhat fluid direction somewhat. Yeah. But I want to move into what types of behaviors, habits, and values contribute to sexual harassment and assault. Because yeah. right now, one of the things that really bothers me about the toxic masculinity culture that's been present for the last couple of years is We've, we've hit that deep pendulum swing again. And now all men are bad because some men are bad. We, we don't do that to other species. It's like saying all women are extreme feminist because some women are extreme feminist. And we've somehow started classifying an entire half of a species by worse of society. So I really, I'm really interested. I, I was, like I said, looking up your stuff. And yeah. I, I'm curious, okay, where do we move from here? Yeah, right. And so I think this is where this is honestly one of the biggest conversations I have with audiences, because I think that inherently we know that an overwhelming majority of people are good people and wouldn't commit and willingly commit acts of sexual violence, especially in the most egregious forms. And I think that's where a lot of people stop. And I think you talk about you talk about sexual violence or sexual harassment. When you talk with that, I think a lot of people's minds automatically goes to, I would never rape someone, I would never harass someone, I would never do X, Y, and Z. And they think about, like I said, that extreme version, and that's all they think on. And I think what happens when you look at that is you start to miss out on a lot of the other pieces of what sexual harassment or sexual violence can look like. And so I think that's one of the contributing factors. And with that, it comes, and I know I talked about this a lot with just masculinity conversations, it's, it's these systems we inherit. And I think for me, the thing I always try and do is educate any of my audiences of here's systems we've inherited. What we choose to do with those systems is up to us. The fact that we inherited them is not inherently our fault. They were around before we were born many times 
decades, centuries before we were born. But just because we were taught this is the way to operate or engage or whatever, it, it's not necessarily, once we know that, we have to do different. So one example I always talk about is like nonverbal expressions. Jokingly, I turn usually call it like resting bro face. I think I see resting bro face a lot, especially when I speak with college age men. Because like anytime I'm talking with college age men, they just look pissed off. Like I could be saying anything, I could be praising them, I could be talking about anything, and they just look mad. There's always like guys in the audience who look like punch me in the face. And I love it because afterwards they'll come up and we'll have again this deep conversation. Usually there's this like guy who was staring murder at me the entire time and he's like, That was fantastic. I'm like, you looked like you wanted to punch me, but cool, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it because the entire time you looked like I insulted you. And I think for me, let's look at, let's break down resting bro face. So right around the ages of five to seven, in many masculine systems that exist, most young boys are taught to repress their emotions. And they're taught, hey, you should not display emotions without a reason. And that you have to have a reason to display your emotions. So if something extremely good happens, you can display happiness. If something extremely bad happens, you can display sadness. And then because of that, we lose some of our capability to show emotions. And then as we start to study that onwards, we start to see in middle school a similar shift. So right around the time between middle school and high school, we oftentimes see there's all these conversations we've had with young men and they'll talk about in middle school, a lot of times this degree of like vulnerability of I felt like I could share anything with my friends. We were talking about serious emotional topics. And then there's this like weird shift that happens almost between eighth and ninth grade. A lot of the boys would talk about where they would come in and they would say something changed over the summer. And now we have to behave a certain way. We have to fit in this mold. We have to be cool. We have to be cold and unca you know uncaring about this stuff. We can't let it show it phasing us. All of a sudden now strength and physical image is starting to come into it more and we're more aware of what our bodies look like and what we can do with them. And so again, there was this like kind of cutting back on emotions. Now, if that's the world you grow up in, you don't necessarily, if those two systems start to interact with each other, what happens is you don't necessarily have to pay as much attention to the people around you's nonverbal cues. So if you're a man and you're spending most of your time with men and that's the groups you're spending time in. So if you look at your average friend and most of them are men and you're in this group where nonverbal cues are not necessarily being discussed as readily. They're not as apparent. They're not as visible. They're not something that's hugely prevalent. What starts to trickle down is when we start to study college age men, we see that showing up in sexual encounters. So when we've studied college age men, what we found is that college age men were more likely to misread a partner's nonverbal cues in a sexual situation. And so we did these studies and we found that, hey, college age men would come in and say, look, I my partner was doing X, so that meant they consented. They were responding this way nonverbally, so that meant this. They were touching me like this, so that indicated they wanted to engage in these behaviors. They were doing this, so that meant they wanted to have sex. And so it's connected from an early age, we're taught repress your emotions, don't show them, especially on your nonverbal features. We grow up and we continue to age into that. And we're in a we're surrounding communities where nonverbals don't pay as much, aren't as big of a precedent. And then we start to have sexual encounters. And we, because we've never necessarily had to think about our partner's nonverbal or our friend's nonverbal cues, then sometimes we discount our partner's nonverbal cues. And so that's where we start to see potential incidents of sexual violence happening, where someone is in a situation, they think something's consensual, they haven't actually stopped, slowed down, asked for it, made sure to confirm that things are consensual. And then all of a sudden an encounter happens and someone walks away and says, I'm not okay with what occurred. And that's just one of many examples of, I think, some of the ways we learn about and are taught about sex, especially for men, that we're really not being given these tools and we're being asked to go in these situations and engage with another human being. And we really don't oftentimes learn about all these pieces. And then we go and we figure it out on our own. Best case scenario, we have consent. The relationship's consensual. Things are okay. Sometimes the worst case scenario though, is it isn't. 
and harm can happen. And harm is such a variable term, that's where it can occur in a lot of ways. And I think sometimes it's trying to help people reconcile those differences. Uh, it's I think there are people who are predators who are choosing to engage in predatory violent behavior because of the power inherent in it and what they get out of it. I think that oftentimes when we study who's potentially perpetrating sexual violence and where it's showing up, we also see, though, that there are people who are engaging in behaviors that society has taught them is normal or okay, that's either discounting their partner, not necessarily fully thinking about it, isn't coming from this place of treating that person as a person or caring about what their experience is in the moment. And the end result is someone gets hurt. And I think that shows up a lot. And that's where we sometimes have to challenge ourselves of, hey, when we hear these statistics or we hear these numbers or we hear these conversations going on, it's taking a step back. And like I said, that critiquing piece is saying, look, just because we know that this is the data or just because we hear this, can we look and say, I, there's one thing of saying like, I'm not a bad man. I would never do that. Versus saying, hey, are there things that I might have engaged in that might have perpetrated that harm? Is there stuff that I might have done that could have contributed to that type of culture or allowed or enabled that? Are there things that I might be doing in my current cultures that might actually be perpetrating this, even though I don't think that's what I'm trying to do? And I think that's a hard conversation to have. And I think that's why people automatically feel like they're being told you're bad when again, it's it becomes so personal when really what we need is that conversation of let's look at the systems. Let's look at the things we learned and inherited and try and really move away from those. Guys, normally I spend a whole lot of time just getting to know our guests, but Tim has so much insight and is having conversations that other people aren't having that I just want to dive straight into it today. And we are certainly getting a lot of incredible information today. In the second half of the show, we're going to dive into sexual assault, violence, and the roles of modern men in this conversation. We're going to roll our sponsor real quick, and we will be right back with more from Tim. I'm calling on all men right now to stand up and stand against this horrific crime. It is estimated that over 300,000 children are being sex trafficked in the United States alone every single day. I want you to get on your social media. I want you to follow savinginnocence.org or fightforme.net. Both of these charities are working to end child trafficking in the United States and abroad. You can donate at www.thefallibleman.com slash shop and buy our inhuman trafficking merchandise and all proceeds will be given indefinitely to savinginnocence.org. You can also go to www.savinginnocence.org slash donate and donate directly to Saving Innocence. Men, it is time for us to fight and stop this horrible thing known as human trafficking. Welcome back. We're here with Tim Masso today discussing Me Too, sexual assault, and the changing role of men in the modern era. Guys, if you missed the first half of the show, you need to go back and catch that portion of the show. Tim is digging into topics that, frankly, most men just aren't ready to talk about and aren't comfortable with. And we're going to just keep rolling right into that. Tim, this is probably the lightest question you're going to get today other than the ice cream question is, what purchase of $100 or less do you make in the last year that has had the biggest impact on your life? It's a rough one. It's hard. I would say a nice pair of sweatpants. Definitely not $100 or anywhere close to that. It's just, I think I used to always wear jeans when I went out and I was like, oh, I just don't want to dress down. And I think especially like with COVID, I working from home and being in my apartment all the time, I was like, I'm going to wear this more because I don't, I'm, who cares? But <laughs> I think I was just like, whatever. So then got a few pairs of sweatpants and I was like, yeah, like these are comfortable. They're cozy. Uh, and now I wear them everywhere. So, Hey, you know, I, I had one guy who, uh, 
he was buying, I think, $80 shorts, but he swore they were the best thing he's ever worn in his life. Yep. So I was like, ah, okay, everybody has their thing that they love. So that's cool. Now we're going to jump back right into the fray. And, and I've got to ask you, and you can tell me to shove off if my questions get too personal, but what's the normal response you get from people when you say you're survival survivor of sexual violence? For example, there was a lot of dismissal and mocking of Terry Crews when he came forward in the Me Too movement that was just wrong as far as I'm concerned. But what is the typical response you get to that? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because no one says it to your face, right? I think no one really looks you in the eye and it's, oh, let me make a joke about that or an offhand comment, which I've certainly heard online through other places. Sometimes when I interact with my audiences, if I have anonymous questions or things like if I let them do anonymous questions and stuff, sometimes it'll come up. I think it's just really discomfort. I think it's, especially for, I think survivors and male survivors, really in general, there's a lot of, uncomfortability behind it. Because some of the questions I think, especially before I made this my career. So now I think that's a little different sometimes because people know what I do and I'm very upfront about it and that's my job. And so most times when people hear about it, it's in a professional setting. I think though, especially in the beginning when I first came out about it, responses were very derogatory. I had one person will tell me, I don't know if I necessarily believe you because a man wouldn't let himself get raped. I had another person ask me if I did something that it was my fault or I was embarrassed about it. It was something I chose to do that I didn't like looking back on. And, and it was, yeah, there was a number of derogatory responses where I think people were just very, why didn't you stop it? What did you do to bring this to yourself kind of pieces? And it shuts you down. And I think that's when a lot of times people talk about like, why don't victims come forward? And it's because that's damning, right? Like the first person I told was my boss because it, the situation broiled over into the workplace. And he was one of the guys who asked those first questions. Are you sure you didn't do this and something that you wanted at the time? Or are you sure that this isn't something that you're embarrassed about? He told me you should tell no one because it's going to impact your ability to have a job. And when I was 22 years old at the time and I heard that, my reaction was just to shut down basically, and to just close everything off. Because after that, I was like, well, I don't want to talk with anyone about this. It amazes me, right? Because I, I have always had respect for Terry Crews. There aren't a lot, I'm not, you know, a big like fanboy of actors and stuff like that. But I think Terry Crews as a public figure has done his best to live yeah. a pretty, pretty upright, upright life and stuff and set good examples. He knows he's in the public eye. I think he's very conscientious about what he does because he knows little eyes are looking up at him too. But I think it's something men just don't talk about. Your boss told you, hey, you should shut up. I got to admit, I'm, I won't say it's non-consensual, but my first sexual encounter was not necessarily something I planned on or was, oh, hey, I'm, I'm going to get laid tonight. It was, uh, you know what? I'm too tired to fight with my girlfriend about it. Now, I wasn't necessarily ready to make that step, and she was. But I also didn't care enough to, I chose not to fight it. I could have fought higher. I was tired and it's just, you know what? We've argued about this. I, I don't even actually care right now, but it wasn't something I was actively seeking at the time. I wouldn't say I was assaulted, but it was like, yeah, it wasn't like entirely like I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. So I think that is, I think this is an important conversation because I, I think a lot of men, we're taught to prize sexual conquest as men. Yeah. We're taught to, we want to put that notch on our bedpost where it's glorified, it's Right. It's what everybody hears about. And you know, I'm 40. I'm almost, I've turned 42 in a couple of weeks. I still hear it at work. I still hear it with guys. I know it's not just, it doesn't stop at junior high and high school. Oh yeah. And so this is something we are taught to prize. So none of us want to go. It wasn't really my plan, 
much less if it was actually against our will. Mine yeah. was, I was just too lazy and just didn't care enough to fight with my girlfriend that night. Wasn't something I was seeking, but it, it wasn't something I was totally against. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. We're going to get around to this sooner or later. Why not? Yeah. But I think there are a lot more guys who made those choices based on I'm a guy, I'm supposed to do this. Absolutely. Cause we don't get to go, well, you know what? I don't really, I, I, I know I'm a guy, but I don't really want to cause then we're just weird. Then, yeah. then come the accusations. Oh, you must be gay. So what if I am is still my choice, right? Yep. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. If you grew up your entire life being told, like you pointed to, if you grew up your entire life being told you're a man, so you have to have sex and your worth comes from the sex that you have and you're a man, so you should want sex. And that's the message you're here time and time again. And it's sold in media and, you know, and things we're consuming and the movies and everything, basically. It puts you in this really hard situation where we know that's not the case. Every man's different. Every person has a different sexual drive, has a different desire. People have a multitude of reasons of why they wouldn't want to engage in sexual activity in a variety of circumstances. And I think that's where that becomes that monolithic. You got it or you have to, or this is what you should want. And I think so often when I hear from and I talk with a lot of male survivors, it's similar experiences and similar things of, and really damning things sometimes where people will talk with me about, yeah, something happened and I didn't, and or I tried to stop it and I was too drunk or I was completely blackout and something happened. And guys will talk about, I like, tried to talk to my friends about it and they make jokes like, well, at least you got laid or just because right. they weren't hot enough for you, don't don't complain about it or whatever. And so- You were slumming, dude, shut don't cover, right? Yeah. And, and so you're just like, you just shut down and it's, and it becomes hard. I think for so many, I think that's why so few men talk about it is because that's the response you get and it really takes away. And then you just kind of, you normalize it and you're like, well, it's, it's not as bad as it maybe was, or you're like, I, I'm just not going to talk about it. Cause it's like, if you've tried and everyone around you just shuts you down or I'm just going to stop, well, I'm not going to have that conversation. I don't think your sexual choices are a conversation that you're quote unquote allowed to have as a male, at least that's not what we're taught. I, I have a friend who is my age, a little bit older than me, who is not married and he's never had sex. And we're very comfortable with that conversation. Now I respect his religious beliefs and the fact that he has managed to stick to it through opportunities to do, but he is, you know, going to wait for marriage, which I, I admire incredibly. He has gotten a lot of crap from other men who are like, dude, what's wrong with you? And it's just, wait, you can't respect his choice. I honestly think I actually just interviewed a gentleman the other day who is a porn counselor, porn addiction counselor. And I think it's actually one of the draws of porn and the pornography industry is we have total control over that. And, and men are more comfortable in control a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times anyways, but we have a hundred percent control over that. No one. And Pornography is generally accepted among men. Your friends don't go, oh, yeah, you're watching porn. Like, hey, yeah, I was watching, you know, I was doing that. It's another bro thing. So I think you, I, I appreciate you are having conversations that just aren't being had and need to be had. So thank you for that, for yeah. your work in that. Now, why do you think we, and, and I think we almost answered this question already, but why do you think we don't hear more about sexual crimes against men? Is it just a, lack of willingness to come forward because we're worried about judgment or... yeah i think it's a 
a mix of stuff. So I think that's a huge piece of it. I think that it can depend on the crime, I would say is also the situation, right? So like for me, I'm straight, I'm married, I have a wife, but I was actually assaulted by another man. And so I think for me, that was an experience where there were many of those questions of, well, are you gay or what does that mean or all that kind of stuff. And so that leads into some of it. I think for many men who grow up straight or if they experience molestation at the hands of another man, it can feel you, there might be that fear of how you're gonna be viewed or treated. I think especially when we look at younger survivors, so people who experience molestation from a very early age, a lot of times I think because of the stigma around it, what we see is that usually if you have a childhood survivor of sexual assault, it sometimes takes them up to 20 years to actually come out about their trauma. And when you talk to them why, a lot of the main factors were because they wanted to wait until they were in a stable relationship, they wanted to wait until they had a stable job, and they wanted to wait until they had a stable place in society before they talked about it. Because there was a lot of fear where if they came out sooner, it might derail them. And I think that's a shift. I think we're seeing some of those shifts happen, right? So I think it's still rare to see men talk about their experience. We're starting to see this become more present, I think, with some of the things that have happened in the last few years, scandals within the Catholic Church, just high-profile incidents coming out and things of that nature. I know, for example, I used to work on the board of uh, directors for a nonprofit called One in Six, and one of our uh, former board members, Greg, was actually a award-winning cyclist who competed for America in the Tour de France. And when the Lance Armstrong doping scandal happened, Greg was called to testify in front of Congress. And he went and the day before his testimony, he got an anonymous call that was basically like, if we, if you testify, we're going to release information to the public that you were molested as a child. And this is early 2000s. And just how incredibly awful that is that in someone's mind, it's the, this, someone else finding out about you being molested as a child is so damaging to your reputation that you're not going to want to testify. And that's why Greg came out about a story and talks about one in six and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're moving a little away from that again. That was early 2000s. I think it, it potentially is moving that way, but I think there still is that fear of even though I had no control of this or this is something that I wanted, I'm going to be treated a certain way because of it. So I think that's part of it. I think the other side is, as we talked about that constant, you have to have sex, your worth comes from sex. If you're not having sex, mm -hmm. um, you're not a man. So then the other side of that is if, if you have non-consensual sex or you're sexually assaulted, you can't complain about it because at least you still had sex. And then I think sometimes it's just when you exist in that culture, then sometimes men downplay what happens to them and they tell themselves it was normal or it was okay or it wasn't as bad as it was or if no one's talking about it, it's like any issue goes or yeah, if we never talk about it, we, we never feel like it's actually a thing and it might right. be, but we just aren't, no one's having a conversation around it. So the next question is a little long. I'm, I'm let me thoroughly explain it because I, I didn't know how to ask this in a short way. So where do we separate the line between just cultural changes and generational changes over sensitivity, actual issues? Now, for example, it's probably a bad yeah. example. Biden and Coma both semi-apologized because he was from a different era and didn't in, intend to offend anybody by the way he, they treated those interns or whatever. And a better example, though, because that's probably a really horrific example. My grandfather was one of the most peaceful, kind, loving people I've ever known. He's never hated anybody. He's never discriminated against anybody. But I remember my cousin correcting him one time when he referred to her boyfriend as a Negro. And she's like, oh, God, Grandpa, you can't say that. He had no negative intentions. He, but he was raised in an era where that was the term for an African-American. 
And so he didn't think he was insulting anybody. He wasn't trying to insult anybody. So there was a giant cultural and generational jump right there. My grandfather was a very old man at the time. And the minute he was told that it was offensive, he was so like just brokenly apologetic because he had never said a, a hard word to anybody. But I think there are definitely some lines getting really blurry. Even at almost 42, there are some things that I would say or joke about that are now, were never offensive growing up. No one ever would have been offended. No one ever would have taken them as harassment. But now there are things you can't say. And so it's a really hard line because I would never minimize somebody's trauma. Okay. Yeah. Hurting anybody without doing anything to somebody without their consent is wrong. But I think there's also a shift towards where words are being taken as more damaging than they necessarily were intended to just because of a cultural shift. I want people who have been wronged. I want people who have been hurt to find justice. I think those people, you, you mentioned the Catholic church and I'll just stay off that rail because I have very extreme feelings about that. As a former minister's son, as a former minister, I worked with teenagers. I've worked with teenagers for over 20 years and I've worked with Teenagers who are usually on the fringes are the kids I end up working with the most. I had one teen, her mom was a crackhead. Like I, I fed her and her sister most of the time at 19 years old. She was 11 at the time because her mom had, you know, junky food in the house. That was the only food that she had. So I have very still strong feelings about that. Having two daughters, having nine nieces, but it's getting really dangerous and things that used to be safe. Things that used to be normal are not anymore. How do we start distinguishing these lines between cultural differences and actual, you know, when does it go from, well, I'm seeing it as wrong, though culturally it's not necessarily, or semantically, I'm choosing to take it this way where it was never intended that way. Like I said, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to belittle anything. I just... I yeah, think it's a absolutely. really hard line as in the workplace. And I know you deal with that a lot. I'm 42. I work with 20 year olds. There's definitely some generational ju jumps. There's some cultural jumps in the way we see the world and the way things are taken. So how do we tread that line? Yeah, I think it's a, it can be a hard one. I think that a lot of times it, I think it takes a lot of empathy and compassion, which I think sometimes people are lacking to have those conversations because i think it's a term i hear a lot is the idea of it's not your intent that matters it's the impact and i think that's valid to a point because i would argue that context does matter when it comes to both intent and impact i think if you look at the context of situations and you're in a situation where there is history or cultural backing or i think context always matters because i think that it, it has to in that regard to yeah, let's make sure that we understand what is that context of the situation and what is going into it, because that's going to change our reaction. And I think reactions need to be more proportionate. I think that you know, I talk about this a lot of, especially a lot of times when I do programs who are like, what are you saying? Because I'll talk openly about like catcalling is a form of sexual harassment. And so people will be like, well, if I catcall someone, is that a crime? And I'm like, well, yeah, it can be depending on where you are and stuff and depending on what you say and the severity and what you do afterwards. And they'll be like, oh, how is that the same as rape? And I'm like, well, it's not. I'm not saying it's the same, right? Like the harm you're committing onto another and the harm you're perpetrating on another is different. The trauma that they're probably going to feel is different. It's not up to me to define what that is. But I think it's, we also can fairly say the punishment should be different where the, the 
repercussions for that are different or the way we handle that situation is different and all of those kind of pieces. And I think sometimes when we look at these conversations of, hey, stuff feels different, I think that's inevitable, right? Change is going to happen. And I think, how are we educating people around those changes? How are we willing to do the work to educate people around those changes? How are we making sure that they have all the information of why that's the case or why that's going on? How are we trying to help have that conversation potentially from a perspective of, look, I'm going to listen to you and I know why you're doing this and you know where you're coming from. For example, I had an old high school friend who joined the Navy after graduation, worked on the submarine, and he would always make rape jokes. And that was his thing. He liked to make rape jokes. And I would call him out time and time again. And he did that even after he knew what I was going through. And one time I remember I got pretty heated and called him out. And he was like, Tim, you know me, it's just a joke. And my response to him is, look, man, yeah, I understand it's a joke, but this is my experience. And you doing this now that you are diminishing my experience. And here's the thing that about me, what do you not know about other people? If you make that in front of them, you have no idea what they're going through, what their experiences are, why they've gone through that. And he would lean back on, that's the way we talked on our ship. That's just the language we use. That's what we did. It was a bunch of guys. So no one got offended. We could just get over it. Why can't you get over it? And my reaction to him was like, but why do you have to? Once you're better, why do you have to keep making this joke? Once you know that this could potentially have an impact on someone, or why is that the joke you have to make? And then his line of reasoning was like, if you go to a comedy show and the comedian makes a rape joke, are you going to be offended? And I'm like, depending, right? What's the joke? What's the severity of it? What's the way they use it? I'm like, for me, probably not, right? If I know I'm going into a comedy show with a controversial comedian who's known for that stuff, okay, then maybe I'm gonna expect it. Do I have to think it's funny? No, not at all. Am I gonna think it's funny? Am I gonna think it's probably pretty lazy? Yeah, absolutely. How am I gonna respond in the moment? I'm not gonna stand up and throw something at them and call them a hack. If I had a conversation with them on a one-on-one level, could I potentially try and cultivate some empathy of, hey man, here's why this joke is shit and it's not that funny and you think it is and it's really whatever that is, right? Or, hey, you may not know this, but or something or whatever. Um, I think the response has to be proportionate because like I said, stuff's changing. Times are changing. The way we have conversations changing. Language is a fluid thing. It always is going to be. That's just a reality. And I think it's just that willingness to listen sometimes if we're on the side of someone says, hey, you offended me. It's I'm sorry. Can you tell me why? And can you explain that to me? Or what can I do instead? Is there a reaction I could take? And then I think if you are in the person who says, look, that's not okay or that's not appropriate culturally, sometimes it's being willing to have that conversation and figuring out what is that equitable solution? So if someone uses a, lane, a name or a term, let's look at the context. Let's look at where they're coming from. Let's look at when it happened, how often they're doing it, or do they continue doing it? Because again, that's going to change on a proportionate level how our response is going to be measured. That's a whole lot to unpack. <laughs> and I think it was a very good answer. I just, I know it's that, I think that's why it's hard for some of us, and, and I'll admit myself included, I probably make some distasteful jokes for sure because I worked on a ranch. I went to the military. I worked construction for umpteen years. So one of the reasons I always got along with kids was I understood their jokes because I'm not sure I ever grew up, but it's, there are so many variables you just touched on. How severe is it? How severe is it for the person who is listening? How was the, what's the situation when we're in? What was the intent behind it? What was going on? We're now trying to measure eight to 10 points of data before we speak because I can make a joke with some of my friends and be around somebody and they could take the joke that me and my friends laughed and blew off 
as, oh my God, what did you just say? I, I think that's part of the reason that it's been very difficult culturally to address these conversations because there are so many variables. If I'm having yeah. a conversation with somebody, I try and, right, I always try and get a feel for somebody and I'm very guarded about what I say, very careful about what words I use, my speech patterns, till I understand them better to make sure that I'm not going to say something offensive. As far, even as far as like swearing, I don't swear where I'm, my mother yeah. lives with us. My father passed away earlier this year. My parents both lived with us. And my mother was a little Southern lady, grew up in Texas and very preacher's wife for 40 plus years, almost 50 years before my dad passed. And so I don't swear in front of my, I don't swear in front of my kids because I don't want them to get in the habit of using that language. I don't necessarily disagree with all that language, but I don't want them to learn the habit of doing it from me because I know there are other people who will have a problem with it. Yeah. So I, I try and be very selective about that, but that is a difficult path navigating, I think, in just open society. I can be at a restaurant having dinner with my, with my wife, make an off-color joke to my wife that she thinks is hilarious, and then have someone at the next table be highly upset about something I said, even if it's said with innocent intention. Like my wife and I have been married for 20 years. And so we tease each other. That's humor and sarcasm is a big part of our marriage. It's, it's how we work. Yeah. And so I tease her all the time. She told me last, I, I usually go to bed before she does. Cause I get up at 4am and last night she came down and kissed me when I got in bed. She said, I love you. I said, yeah, I love me too. My wife laughs it off because me, yeah. right? Someone else would be like, dude, you're a dick. Is yeah. that's, that's just a total jerk move. What are you doing? In fact, I actually had to scale it back when I was planning for this because I, I, Almost just couldn't, like, I could feel the off-color jokes coming, man. Just the sexual innuendos because I'm just that guy. I never stopped being 12. But I think that's why it's so difficult is yeah. there's a lot of cultural norms. And like going back to the question about my grandfather, right? There were so many changes that were so hard for him to navigate because there was such a high-speed change between his generation and me and my cousins. Yeah. One generation earlier, my cousin's mom she never would have gotten away with dating a black kid in Texas, right? Her and her husband and my grandparents were absolutely fine when their daughters were dating an African-American young man. Didn't face them at all. But you remove that by a decade, two decades, and oh my goodness, in Texas, that was just unthinkable. It's amazing how fast the world is changing. And so I think there's got to be give and take, but nobody wants to discuss that. We want to jump to, like I said, we're back to the pendulum. We want to jump to, yeah. oh, I'm super offended. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Why? What offended you? Why is that offensive? Can you help me? You're just a jerk. You're yeah. just, it's, we snap one way or another instead of having these conversations. I had one coworker who told me we, I made a couple off color jokes. She's like, oh, this, I was like, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry. She's a sweet young woman. I would never want to offend her. And so we had a really hard conversation because at that point she at least knew me enough to know yeah. I wasn't trying to upset her or do something offensive, but you're, it's, this rolls right into my next question. Cause some of the work you're doing is working on creating safe cultures in the workplace. And I know as this becomes more prevalent and it's, it's right. Okay. I'm not disagreeing that it needs to happen, 
But as this takes place, you get people who are in certain age groups who was like, this is big change for us. I, I like I said, I, I have a background. I, I was a ranch hand. I was in the military. I was a construction worker. I'm, I'm about as blue collar as it gets with my language sometimes and the things I say, because that's what I was around. And even being a preacher's kid, that's just what I was around in my professional career. I started working when I was 16. But as we move that direction, like I know for me, it's getting to a point where I'm more and more worried about working with anybody because I can say things I didn't know was offensive are wrong or I didn't think was harassment. I would never like, I, I have two daughters and that will change your life as a man. I have nine nieces. I would never knowingly do something to offend a woman. I just not that guy, but more things are moving so quick and harassment claims have become weaponized. There are legitimate harassment claims and there are illegitimate, but just like with the me too movement, there were a lot of people who had been hurt there were a lot of people who were just throwing up. Oh, me too. We're going with the local fad right now who I've been thrilled. I saw where a college girl, like evidence was overwhelming that the boy never did this thing. And I was so grateful to see him exonerated. And the judge actually penalized her for falsely accusing a young man because it destroyed his life. Like it, he got kicked out of the college. It destroyed his scholarships. He won't, the college won't take him back, even though he was out of, completely exonerated by video footage that he was not with her, did not hurt her. And there are the extremists. Like I said, there's always the extremists who have weaponized this because they know, hey, we can push that button and make things happen. And so I'm getting to a point where I, I would almost embrace work from home. I still work at a facility. I would almost embrace work from home because being changing culture with ages from 20, 60, that boundary line keeps moving back and forth a little bit as people accept some things and reject other things to where like, it's scary to talk sometimes. So how are you, I, I'd love to know how you are fostering those better cultures. And I'll yeah. use that word willingly. I, I, I think you are working on creating better cultures for everybody. I, I believe yeah. that. So how is that going? How's that being received? Yeah, I think sometimes it's just at one point, I think sometimes it's trying to help people recognize what we hear and what we think we hear in proximity versus because I do know those I know false allegations happen. I know false reports happen. And I think it's trying to help people understand it's a lot more rare than we think not to discount when those situations emerge or like that court case you mentioned. But like the thing I always talk about is, hey, we know that 95% of incidents of sexual harassment will never be reported. 75% won't even be reported to colleagues or direct manager. And and that's based on you know a lot of the best data we have from EEOC and a lot of things like that, where Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is going in and actually reviewing and assessing. And we have years of surveys that kind of show that. And those levels have remained pretty stagnant since the 1980s when they first put in place policies around sexual harassment. I think sometimes people get caught up in, oh, this is going to be bigger than it is. And sometimes I think it's actually happening a lot more than we think. And people just aren't talking about it because there's still, still that fear of retaliation. 75% of people who do report harassment experience, talk about experiencing her, her, her retaliation in response. And that's both men and women. So I think for me, it's sometimes trying to remove some of that fear of where I think people think it can go and trying to help them recognize like, hey, how can this potentially look like how can this show up? And what are the differences of what we see going on versus 
what can change versus let's really center in on what behavior should change and where what this means. So for example, from just a policy standpoint, I oftentimes advocate for organizations to have stricter policies around sexual harassment and to really open up not necessarily, actually stricter isn't even the right term, open up their definition of what sexual harassment is. Most organizations accept the EEOC's version, and that really requires that harassment has to become pervasive or severe in order for it to be considered sexual harassment that could be punished on a legal level. And the problem with that is if you're only looking for the worst case behaviors, you're missing out on all these behaviors that are still occurring that are harassment, that are hurting people, and you're also creating this dichotomy where either something is terrible or something's good. And when you're only looking at it from that capacity of something's terrible or good, right? So sexual harassment's either awful or it's not, or sexual assault is only rape or it's not other things. I think that's where you have a fear of coming to the conversation because that's where all of a sudden, every time someone thinks of a behavior potentially falling under or being defined as harassment or being offensive, their automatic mind goes to, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to be fired, I'm going to be thrown underneath the, the news is going to hear about this, a high profile case is going to emerge, all of that kind of stuff. Versus if we can create environments where we get much more comfortable talking about people's boundaries and what they're comfortable with and what they're okay with, what it allows us to do is say, hey, let's agree on some stuff we're never going to do. As a culture, let's all agree we're not going to do X, Y, and Z. This, is, this crosses the line immediately. We know this crosses the line immediately. Let's also talk about other stuff that is going to be different for people, right? So for some of your coworkers, they may not care about a sense of humor, or they may be fine talking about their personal relationships that they have with their husband or wife or their partner or the person they're dating. For other coworkers, they say, I don't want you to know about my relationship. I want to come to work. I want you to be my colleague. I don't want you to ask about who I'm dating. I don't want you to make comments about it, whatever. And when we stop looking at everything as either it's awful or it's okay, and we start to look at, hey, this is not okay, but there's some other stuff over here that we can start to define and say, people have different perceptions around it. That's where I think we could find those safer cultures because we say everyone has different boundaries, right? For some people, it's look. I don't want to hug. If I'm in the work environment, I don't want you to hug me. I don't want you to touch me. I don't want you to put a hand on my back. I don't want you to do any of that. And other people are like, fine with that. It doesn't bother me. And so it's cool. When we can have that conversation, it allows us to better tweak the way we're engaging. It allows us to better, like I said, then that's where we start to bring in those data points we talked about earlier, the context and the history and the relationship and the trust and the intention and all of those things, because we're better educated around this is what's okay, this is what's not okay. Because So that example you shared earlier about you and your younger colleague, where it's like, hey, you, you may made a joke or comment and all of a sudden those 20 year olds like, hey, that's not okay. I think about the other side of that where you guys had a really positive conversation and you were able to emerge on the other side where because she knows you and trusts you, she's, hey, I can see that's not what she meant. Cool, our relationship changes. Now you're a good man, you're not gonna do this again. I always think about how powerful is it if we come into a situation knowing that so that violation or that feeling of hurt never has to happen. What if we just do a better job of talking about boundaries on the front end so you know that right away? Because that's just going to deepen the relationship and that's just going to lead to a better workplace environment because it's good that it turned out that way. And it's, I'm, it's so glad that you know you were able to say, hey, you know me, you trust me, I'm a person, you understand that, I made a mistake, let's move on, or you, you're not comfortable with this, I'm not going to do it again. And like I said, I think it's so much better to just be able to know that from the front end. And when we do a better job of talking about this, and we're, we're not just, this is awful, this is okay, and we're saying, hey, let's you know actually look at things, I think it lets us just have 
better environments where people are more comfortable and know how to treat each other and know how to interact and know how to talk to each other and all of those kind of pieces. I think that is a, a difficult road just because some of those conversations, those are very personal, even, even establishing yeah. your boundaries with people, right? It's a very yeah. personal conversation. You have to be willing to open up and just coming into a situation. It's not like we're going to sit down at work and have oh, we hired the new guy and we're going to sit down in the conference room and you're going to tell us all what your boundaries are. Yeah. Because, right, that's an incredibly awkward conversation and un uncomfortable. That person's like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't really want this job. So it's it seems like a really difficult road to hoe because you need a level of trust to have that conversation. Yep. And, and I get, I understand the idea of it'd be better to have those conversations earlier on. How do you establish that trust where you can have those conversations early on in relationships, whether it's working or personal. I, I, I admire the work, man. It's yeah. you were, I picked a hard road with trying to work with men and encourage men because we don't like advice, but you definitely have Trump. This is a hard road to work. So I, I think it's incredible that you're having these conversations. What is next for? Yeah, I think, um, Right now, just continuing to build out research around boundaries. I think that question you asked is a million dollar question. How can we get people comfortable with this and trust and really trying to take some of the research I've done around sexual violence to apply that to the boundary conversation. So launching some surveys and studies with different organizations and partners to try and figure out like what are tools to do this? What are ways to make it comfortable? How can we look at actually creating a method around it that people can use that feels comfortable and also just human um, in that kind of sense. And then hopefully also writing a book. So that's the kind of ultimate goal. Technically, we already written the book, right? So my wife is a children's book illustrator. So actually that's her art hanging behind me and stuff. And we have a lot of children's books on our bookcase because of that. So she illustrates children's books. And when we first started dating, she had an idea for a book that she was like, I'm not a writer. And I was like, oh, I am. So we wrote that together and she illustrated pieces of it. And so we're pitching right now. So we're trying to find an agent. So that's like the dream goal is to do that. I'm going through that process, which is fun and challenging at times, but hopefully that'll lead somewhere. So you have a great website. I was on it earlier. Let me share this out with our video viewers, guys. And it's www.timso.com. I even got that right. Yep. And you can go and find out more about Tim there. Where else are you on social media, stuff like that? Yeah, usually I'd say my uh, LinkedIn, I generally post a lot of like workplace stuff in there. So just LinkedIn, Tim Musso, and then on Instagram, Tim underscore Musso. So there's the underscore in between it and get in time to get the actual thing, but post some stuff on Instagram as well. So yeah. And guys, I will have links in the show notes and the description of both the YouTube video and the podcast. So you guys can meet up with Tim and learn more about what he's doing. Maybe send him some questions or ideas. Help him have this conversation. He's doing research, right? So input is valuable. So if maybe you have some ideas about this, maybe you have some questions about this. Maybe he can point you in the right direction at his website or his other places. I was looking at your Instagram earlier. You post a lot of stuff there too. Dig in and find out more about Tim Musso and you know, it's the world is changing and it's one of those things I'm a big fan of. If you're not growing, you're dying. I tend to see things fairly black and white on a lot of stuff. And it's really only dead things don't grow. 
right? Some of us are growing painfully, kicking and screaming along the way, but you don't have an option, man. It's happening. The world is changing. Times are changing. And we have to adapt and grow with the culture around us. We cannot set examples. We cannot help other young men find a good direction if we're not willing to grow and mature with them to be able to be relevant in the world they're in. So it doesn't matter if you're 60 or 40 or 20, you have to grow together to work with the other men around you to strengthen them, to encourage them, to help them be the best they can be. And they can help you be the best you can be as times change and we adjust to things. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Guys, as always, be better tomorrow because of what you do today, and we'll see you on the next one. This has been the Fallible Man Podcast, your home for everything man, husband, and father. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a show. Head over to www.thefallibleman.com for more content and get your own Fallible Man gear.